Here comes a professional audio slate. Three, two, damn it. The Garner Andrews Show with Bryce Kelly presents That Was Close. <laughs> what? <laughs> I guarantee you this guy gave himself the nickname of Trash Man. <laughs> oh my God. Bryce Kelly, if you like tales of the high seas, masculine toxicity, mm-hmm. drunkenness. Check, check, check. Sharks, life rafts, open sores, more sharks. You haven't said a word I don't like. If well, I had to then rank I, them, I would go open sore, then shark. Have I got a tale for you? This is the true life survival story of the crew of the Trash Man. The, what? The Trash Man. It's a boat. Let me tell you more. Our tale this time around, Bryce, takes us all the way back to October of 1982. And I thought when I was putting this together, I thought it'd be fun to listen to, you know, some of the slapping hits of 1982. Beautiful year. What they might have been listening to on board the Trash Man as they were sailing her out to sea. There were some absolute full-on slappers in 1982. Songs like Joan Jett, I Love Rock and Roll. A classic. Tommy Two-Tone, who can forget? Eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. Anyone who ever actually had that phone number, oh, their that life was a bad been, year for them. It would have been hell. I bet you it's still a bad year for them. I'll Probably bet you is. people still, at least once a day, dial eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. And, I wonder if they and were, ask, is Jenny there? I wonder if they retired that phone number the way Wayne Gretzky's number was retired in the NHL. Like, no one can wear 99 anymore. Well, there are some legendary phone numbers, I hope they haven't retired 911. That'd be unfortunate. <laughs> but oh god, can you imagine? Uh but yeah, they could they could retire 8675309. You know what else was a big song that year? Jay Giles band, Centerfold. Who can forget? La 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 la. Yeah, yeah, okay. John Mellencamp, Jack and Diane. All right. Little ditty about Jack and Diane. Sitting outside Eating chili dog outside the tasty freeze. God, that song is layers. Uh, Olivia Newton-John, physical. <gasps> Rest in peace. That was a banger. But you know what I imagine they were listening to? Foreshadowing right now. You know they end up in a life raft. Okay. You know they have to fend off the sharks. Ooh. I imagine this music was playing in the background all the time. Eye of the Tiger. Oh, for sure. That's dun, the dun, one. Dun. So anyway, Bryce, it's October 1982. Five crew members climb aboard. It's a brand new 58-foot yacht called the Trash Man. Mm, a 58-footer. Uh, the crew had never sailed together before. They were, you know, they were a crew that was slapped together to deliver this yacht from Bar Harbor, Maine, all the way down the east coast of the U.S. to uh, her new owner, a guy in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who earned his fortune in the garbage business, hence the yacht's name, The Trash Man. Okay. I guess that makes sense. I still feel like if you are got the money, you bought a 58-foot yacht, come up with a sexier name than The Trash Man. I get you're in the trash business. I but... guarantee you this guy gave himself the nickname The Trash Man. Do you think his wife is just like, could have named this one after me. Instead, you went with The Trash Man. Yeah. Ooh, boy. Does she become the trash lady? <laughs> the, this trip. So anyway, these five people, they were hired to sail this ship down the East Coast. It was about a 2,100 kilometer journey. Deborah Kiley, 
24 years old at the time. She was the she was the most experienced crew member. At 20, what were you doing at 24? Not sailing a boat. No. And I don't want to make it sound like she had no experience. She was actually very experienced. She uh, held the distinction of being the first American woman to complete an around-the-world yacht race. So she knew a thing or two about the ocean. Okay, she knows how to sail. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, the skipper, who, if I understand this correctly, is the big boss of the boat, was a guy named John Lippeth. And in the episode of I Shouldn't Be Alive, Deborah described him as a guy that liked to celebrate. But she said she had faith in him because his resume was apparently quite impressive, even though he liked to celebrate. Like to celebrate. That means he had a collection of party hats or something? Uh, something like that. So John, the skipper, he brought along his girlfriend, Meg Mooney, and she just tagged along for S's and G's. Meg was along for the Jimmy Buffett parts of sailing, you know, the calm waters, the margaritas and the blistering sun, quaint ports of call, meaningful interactions with the locals. And she got almost none of that. Oh, Yeah, none of that. Brad Kavanaugh, he was an un- another member of the crew. He was the youngest member of the crew. And he had some sailing experience, but not the kind that Deborah and John had. So that particular four-person crew, Deborah, John, John's girlfriend Meg, and Brad, set off from Maine on the trash man, but they had to make a pit stop just a little ways down the road in Maryland so they could pick up the fifth member of the crew, a guy from England named Mark Adams. And this guy was a friend of Brad Kavanaugh's, and according to some reports, he was, quote, a bit of a dick. <laughs> he, he and Deborah definitely didn't get along. She thought he was a chauvinist. Oh, my. Uh, Despite the fact that Debbie didn't have a good feeling about the newest crew member, the five crew members pushed off from Maryland and they began the journey to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And according to reports, everyone seemed to be getting along and having a good time. The weather was absolutely perfect on on the first day. They were making great time. They were right on schedule. Even Deborah said in interviews later on that the weather could not have been more perfect that first night, but the calm wouldn't last for long. There was trouble brewing, and that trouble was headed their way. So at one point, Deborah is like, okay, I'm going to go get some rest. This is at nighttime. And uh, let me know if you need me back up here on deck and I'll take over. And when she went to bed, she said it was calm. She didn't have a care in the world. But all that changed a few hours later when she was fast asleep in her bunk. And the trash man skipper, remember John Lippeth, the guy who likes to celebrate, Mm -hmm. came barging (laughs) into her sleeping quarters yelling for Debbie to wake up. While she was asleep, the wind had really picked up, and John's girlfriend, Meg Mooney, remember her? Yeah, just around for the S's and G's. Yeah, she had taken a spill on the deck, and on top of that, the sea was getting really rough, and the boat was already starting to take on water. Lippeth demanded that Deborah get herself up on deck to help out. So she gets herself dressed, she scrambles up on deck, and in an interview, she described it as being... Like being on a roller coaster or being in an elevator just as it drops, that sinking feeling in your stomach. And the part that, this is the part that is terrifying, but at the same time, kind of entertaining. She said when she got up on deck, Mark Adams, remember the guy who's described as a bit of a dick, the English guy? Okay. He's standing on deck, absolutely hammered, just howling at the top of his lungs as the boat's being pounded by rain and wind and huge waves. 
while the skipper's girlfriend, she's just laying there injured, but he's tied a rope to the steering wheel, like the big ship's wheel. Yeah. He's tied a rope to it, like as some sort of cruise control device. Oh, my God. I don't know. I, I imagine that works in a cartoon, but not in real life. I just think of that Mr. Bean episode where he's in the recliner on the roof of the car steering with Ex- the rope. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what this was. But anyway, Meg Moon. And he's howling at the moon. She's how- and Meg, the, the skipper's girlfriend, she's actually in rough shape. She's injured. She's in a lot of pain. Apparently, um, the boat got hit by a huge wave and she got pounded across the deck and hurt her back quite badly. Oof. Man, I can't imagine. Because when I first hear that that Deborah has gone to bed and I think, oof, a bed on a boat that's going across the ocean, that's probably really relaxing. Oh, it'd be soothing. You're just being rocked and then being woken up by a guy, get up here! Oh my God! That's a, that's a bad way to wake up. Now, this is where... The S really starts to go off the rails. Turns out that John Lippeth, you know, the boss, the guy in charge of the boat, the skipper, he didn't bring any charts. That's fancy talk for maps. Wow. Okay. That's bold. It's a bold strategy <laughs> uh, to hit the open seas it's and just be like. Con- it's a cockiness. <laughs> but does he just point at the sun and be like, hmm. Over there. Due west. Yeah. So this meant they weren't able to tell where they were. So. You know, they could maybe find a port or at least a safe place on shore to land the boat. And they needed to because, first of all, the boat and the crew were in trouble due to the sudden change of weather. But also Meg Mooney, she was in need of medical attention, ASAP. So John, the skipper, he goes down below and he's yelling, Mayday, Mayday, into the radio because they're completely effed by now. Meanwhile, the wind's blowing like a bastard. The waves are absolutely pounding the boat, tossing it around like a toy in a bathtub. Remember English guy Mark Adams? Bit of a dick. Uh, The one that just moments ago was hammered and howling into the storm. He's now steering the ship. Oh, good. That's where he should be. So things on the trash man are going great. So we have... Someone with a badly injured back. Mm-hmm. Someone who forgot the maps. Yeah. And the drunk guy is at the wheel. Exactly. Perfect. Recipe yeah. for success. But the skipper, he, the John Lippeth, the guy who went down below and is yelling, Mayday, Mayday, he does get a hold of the Coast Guard. Uh, the Coast Guard gives him directions to get the boat to the nearest port, but it's not going to work because the weather is just too ugly to get back to shore. And the ship's sails and a bunch of its rigging have been destroyed. To use a nautical term, they were aft. With the sails destroyed, huge waves tossing the trash man around like a cork. John, the skipper, he tried desperately to restart the engines, but it was too late. They were toast. They were at the complete mercy of Mother Nature. And Mother Nature was having a really bad day. Without the engines, they obviously you know, wouldn't be able to drive the boat back to shore. But no engines also meant that they wouldn't be able to charge the batteries. Without the batteries, they wouldn't have a radio to communicate with the Coast Guard so the Coast Guard could guide them home because, you know, no maps. Knowing that they were going to be without power in a very short time, uh, the skipper decides to radio the Coast Guard for help one last time. And this really upsets drunk English guy because... I assume toxic masculinity. He seemed to think that calling for help was a sign of weakness. Yeah, he's got a handle on things. Why aren't we listening more to the drunk howling guy? (laughs) I don't know. 
the crew of the Trashmen hadn't lost complete hope yet because when the Coast Guard was on the radio, they were informed that there were a couple of big Russian freighters in the vicinity. Not super close, but closer than any Coast Guard vessel. So the guard radioed the Russian freighters and said, hey, can you pick these yahoos up? Uh, in some later interviews, Deborah said that knowing these freighters were on their way lulled the crew into a false sense of security. Her exact words, it was the kiss of death. Ooh, God. So, Knowing this is the part, I don't know that I'd be able to just sort of sleep through this, but knowing that help was on its way, Debbie and Brad headed down below to try and get some rest, despite the fact it was the middle of the night in a storm on the ocean in a boat with no sails, engine, power, or radio, or maps, and it's getting blown all over the place, and their crewmate Mark was just wrecked. Well, you know how it is. You're facing death, staring you right in the eyes. Your first reaction is that you're a little sleepy. <laughs> Maybe I can just sleep this problem uh, away. I don't know if this is the booze or if it would actually work. I'm leaning towards it was probably the booze. But drunk Mark, feeling helpless and unable to control the boat, he takes some rope and ties off the steering, the helm, and just goes down below to try and get some sleep. Also a great plan. There was an old urban myth way back in the day about a couple that bought a motor home and it had cruise control. So they just set the cruise control and went to the back to make some sandwiches. That's not how it works. Yeah. I like that there had to be a point where they're counting like, wait, how many people are down below deck here? One, two, three, four, five. Who's steering this thing? Oh, you know who's steering? The ropes. <laughs> That's who's steering. So anyone, everyone's feeling pretty defeated now as they're getting pounded by 40 or 50 foot waves. The boat's getting slammed from every direction. Eventually, the impact of the waves is so great that all the windows get smashed out. Ooh. And that that's when things go from like a 10 to a 37. Because with the windows blown out, the ship starts taking on water. The trash man was sinking, and she was sinking fast. Were they still asleep at this point? I would hope that the breaking windows would have woken them up. Oh my god! I only need two more hours. Things on board the trash man are bad now. Real bad. According to Deborah, when she managed to get herself back up on deck again... There was nothing she could do. The trash man was going down. In her words, we were sinking like a stone and it was time to abandon ship. Mark, the English guy, he was fumbling with one life raft while Brad, the youngest crew member, was trying desperately to undo the other life raft before it was too late. And, you know, they didn't want the life rafts going down with the ship. Brad did eventually get his raft into the water and so did Mark. But this is where I face palmed so hard I gave myself a black eye. Mark got his raft into the water, but for some reason or another, and maybe it was because he was drunk, he just let go of it. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, the wind's blowing from all directions, and the wind just took it away. It was gone. The seas were so rough, the wind was so strong, there was no way in the world they were going to be able to catch up to it. So now here they are, five crew members, one raft. Oh, and to make matters worse, the raft that blew away, it was the one that had the emergency beacon on it that would have made it possible for search and rescue aircraft to spot them from the air. It also had the water purification system in it, their emergency food, the flares, fish hooks, 
a spare radio. Oh no. It had all the good stuff in it and it was long gone. The raft they were left with had nothing. Absolutely not. It was like a, I don't know, you go, there's no rental cars left at the airport. So you get that base model one with the crank windows. That's what they got, but in the form of a, a life raft. I don't want to victim blame, but it seems like when you have a guy who was not long ago drunk, howling at the moon, and is also the same guy that tied ropes to the steering wheel, that maybe when you see him fumbling with the most important life raft on the boat that is sinking, you go, hey, how about you step aside? Yeah. You sit this one out. Yeah. yeah. If you can just go sit in the corner. So, Bryce, remember Meg Mooney? Mm-hmm. The skipper's girlfriend. She hurt her back on the deck. Right. She's having a bad time. Yeah. Well, everyone else was busy launching life rafts, letting life rafts go into the wind, climbing into life rafts. She was busy being all tangled up in the sails and the rigging on the deck. And if they didn't do something quick, she was going to get dragged down to Davy Jones's locker. So, Deborah, she told I shouldn't be alive that if she didn't let go of the life raft and swim over to Meg and rescue her, it was, see you later, Meg. Now, wasn't Meg's boy toy also on one of these life rafts? Mm, yeah, John, Skipper John. I'm not the most romantic man in the world, but I feel like it would have been nice if maybe he had been the one to save her from doom uh, and not his co-worker. Hey, there's some awkward conversations <laughs> coming up later on in this episode that kind of along those lines, but between two different people. So anyway, with Meg stuck on the deck of the boat and the boat sinking, Deborah swam back to the trash man and got her free. Oof. Just like something out of a movie, Deborah says that as soon as she got back to the life raft with Meg, she looked back and saw the last little bit of the trash man slip underwater and disappear. As she and the other four survivors clung onto the side of the life raft, she said that it was the most devastatingly lonely time in her entire life to watch that boat disappear. The five of them then spent the night hanging onto the life raft, which had been flipped upside down during the storm. Yeah, that'd be a hard thing to flip back over. If you've ever been on a tubing before behind a boat, flipping oh, yeah. that thing back over in the middle of a lake is hard. Oh, yeah. So full-on life raft, forget it. So Brad Kavanaugh says the next day when the sun came, the sun didn't really come up. He said it got light out, but it, he said it was really cloudy and gray and it was quite cold. They had been in the water all night, clinging to the side of that dinghy. They're starting to think that if they didn't get out of the water and into the upside down life raft, they were all going to die from hypothermia. Instead, they all took shelter under the life raft. Mm -hmm. Can't get a hypothermia underneath a raft. No, it's like, remember we were talking about this the other day, parachute and gym class. It was strangely peaceful underneath that parachute and probably strangely peaceful underneath that life raft. So they stayed under there for quite some time. Deborah said that at one point it was actually quite peaceful, but she felt like she was being lured into a false sense of safety and security again. She knew that it was only a matter of time before they all succumbed to the elements. So they decided to flip the raft right side up. They'd still get blasted by the wind and rain, but at least they'd be out of the water. Once they got the dinghy flipped right side up, the first thing they had to do was get Meg out of the water. She had the most serious injuries, but it wasn't until that they had her in the raft that the extent of her injuries were known. And according to Deborah, when Meg got caught in the rigging on the trash man before it went down, she received some pretty deep gashes, like almost down to the bone. Oof. And then going into the seawater probably didn't feel oh, great. Yeah. Ooh, that would sting. 
This is about to go to the next level, actually. Are you ready for this? I don't think I can, man. So Brad, Meg, and John the Skipper, they're in the life raft, but English Mark, he decided to jump into the water and cling to the raft because it was too windy and cold to sit in the raft. Uh, Deborah was in the water too, just clinging to the side. And according to Deborah, her and English Mark, like they're just hanging off the raft. A couple of minutes later, she's like, hey man, quit kicking me. And he's like, I'm not kicking you. And she's like, yes, you are. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm pretty sure that's how the whole discussion went down. But at one point, Deborah moved away from him because she's tired of him kicking her. She decides to put her face underwater and have a look. That's when she sees hundreds of sharks. Oh, my God. And they're circling right below their legs, right underneath the raft. Well, that one with the gashes probably leaking water or blood the whole way probably didn't help. So Mark and Deborah they hightail it out of the water, back into the raft, just as dozens of sharks surface and start circling the five survivors (laughs) in the flimsy 13-foot raft. Less than two millimeters of rubber separates the survivors from the apex predator of the sea. Now, I don't want to come down on sharks. Obviously, they're terrifying. But it kind of feels like they're picking on some pretty helpless people here. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're, they're, they found the weakest of the bunch, and that's what they're going for. I'm not impressed with the sharks here. Yeah, I hope they don't brag to other sharks. Yeah, this isn't what champions do. The crew members of the Trash Man have now been bobbing around in the Atlantic Ocean, somewhere off the eastern seaboard of the United States, for 18 hours. The sun's starting to go down again, but at least the wind has stopped. The water's getting calm, but it's getting cold again, and the sharks are still circling. As night number two sets in, the crew members are tired, wet, cold, and hungry, wondering whether they have what it takes to survive another night in the middle of nowhere. That's when Meg Mooney spots a light in the distance. For a fleeting moment, the survivors are like, yeah, paddle, we need to get to that boat. They'll rescue us for sure. But they decide it's futile because it's pitch black. No one can see them. They decide it's not worth expending their energy to try and get to a ship that could be 20 miles away. I feel like you should probably go for it. If the the only thing, the only glimmer of light you've seen in, what, 18 hours, you said? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're 18 hours into this. I'd give it a go. Uh, in the meantime, it starts raining. So the Perfect. crew... Well, they get excited about it because they think they can quench their thirst by oh, laying back, right. letting the rain fill their mouths. But in the end, it wasn't enough rain, and it really only served to make them feel even less in control of the situation and even more helpless. And on top of it all, when the rain stopped just minutes later, the ship that they had seen on the horizon gone, there would be no rescue. Oof. You know who wasn't gone, though? All those sharks that were circling the raft. Well, they're hungry. Making their presence known by swimming by with that fin sticking out of the water and bumping into the raft repeatedly. Then they disappear and lure the crew back into that sense of security, only return later and start bashing into the raft again. And this apparently went on all night, but eventually when the sun came up on day number three... Well, their problems were far from over. Oh my God. We're into day three of this mess now? Dehydration was now setting in. They were hungry. They were lost and losing hope that they'd ever be rescued. Deborah, who up until this point was definitely in a leadership role, she broke down and snapped and told the rest of their survivors that they were all screwed and that the Coast Guard wasn't coming. 
Obviously, this was shocking for others because up until now, she'd been the glue. I'm not going to lie. I would have been at that point five minutes in. Oh, yeah. With very little to be hopeful about, all the crew could do was lean back in their rubber raft and drift. They didn't know this, but by this time, they were approximately 140 miles from the nearest land and (laughs) heading out even further into the vast Atlantic Ocean. Well, good thing the Atlantic Ocean is super tiny. You want to hear something gross? Yes. The, the bottom of the raft where they were sitting, it was like now a mixture of blood from Meg's leg injuries, pus, urine. Everyone was in absolute agony because they were all getting infections from the swirling cocktail of bodily <laughs> fluid in the bottom of the raft. It was getting oh into their God. cuts, especially Meg, who had some, you know, some pretty substantial wounds. Deborah said it was like we were all just sitting there watching Meg die. I feel like if I were in that situation, I would just pee over the side of the raft. Yeah. True. That's just me. You have well, a big ocean no, to aim in. There's no excuse for sitting and pee. The other things, you're not going to be able to avoid that. But. Yeah, the blood I get. The pee, I feel like you'd have other options. Yeah. Uh, like holding it until a rescue comes. <laughs> By the time night rolled around, remember this is now night number three they're heading into. The crew is all starving. They're dehydrated. They've become delirious. At one point, and this is in the middle of the night, Brad and Deborah wake up and look over and they see English Mark and John the Skipper with their heads hanging over the edge of the life raft and they're drinking seawater. Ooh. Which I think is probably quite common when people are dying of thirst on the ocean. And it's cruel because you're surrounded by the thing you need the most, but it's not the right kind of thing. It would be like, I don't know, Getting stranded in a small town on a Friday night of a long weekend with an empty gas tank, but all the service station has left is diesel. So anyway, drinking seawater equals bad. It dehydrates you even more and can cause your organs to start shutting down. And you get delirious, dangerously delirious and delusional. Deborah and Brad knew better than this. Deborah actually knew that it wouldn't be long before the salt water killed her. Uh, and the crew members or they killed themselves because of the delusion and she was right it only took a matter of hours before the mania set in oh boy mania that's when you know that's a word mania is never associated with anything good there's been very little mania up until this point (laughs) I feel no very calm I would have been I would have been in a state of mania Pretty quick. Yeah. Probably before the boat even sank. Well, it's day number four now, Bryce. Oh, God. The sun's coming up. English Mark and Skipper John are full-on nuts because, you know, of the delusion brought on from drinking copious amounts of seawater the night before. At one point, Skipper John is standing in the life raft yelling, I see land. I see land. I see the hospital where my mom works. And Deborah and Brad are like, we're in the middle of the ocean, dude. Sit down. But John swears he can see land, and not only can he see land, he can see his car, and he's going to go get it and drive them all to the hospital to get help. And just like that, he steps off the side of the life raft and into the ocean and starts swimming away. It's only a matter of seconds later that the rest of the survivors all heard what they described as a blood-curdling scream as John is attacked by sharks and dragged below the surface. John the Skipper, gone. Wow, okay. Uh, I'm not going to lie. At the start of this story, on my bingo card, I did not have devoured by sharks high on the list. Oh, it gets worse. What a way to go. 
oh my God, it'd be horrible. Because I don't think it would be immediate. You spend your last three days slowly going insane, hungry, yeah. sitting in pee, and then the final cherry on top is you get eaten by sharks. Ugh. So now it's only Deborah, her friend Brad, English Mark, and Skipper John's girlfriend, the seriously injured Meg, who at this point is drifting in and out of consciousness and is in pretty rough shape. As the four remaining survivors drift even further out to sea, dehydrated, starving, and delirious, English Mark is becoming restless and announces that he's just stepping out for a few minutes <laughs> to go get some cigarettes and to stretch his legs. He stands up, steps off the life raft into the shark-infested waters, and everyone knows exactly how violently things end for him. It's only a matter of seconds before Mark was attacked, and dragged under the water to meet the same fate as his saltwater-drinking partner, God. Skipper John. So two of them eaten by sharks. Mm-hmm. Wow. And at this point, the sharks, they've got a taste for blood. They've just fed on two of the crew members. And were they were aware. Like, the sharks knew there was more people just upstairs, separated by just a thin layer of rubber. So they start attacking the raft. Oh, God. They're bashing it, trying to flip it. Uh, Deborah told I shouldn't be alive that it was the single most terrifying moment of her life and she started to wonder what it's going to feel like to be eaten alive by sharks would the end come fast or would it be slow and agonizing she even pondered if she'd be better off drowning herself so she wouldn't have to feel the shark attack if I were on a cruise and I saw two people on that cruise get eaten by sharks I would say that was a bad vacation I would summon a helicopter at any expense, I'd be like, I'm done. <laughs> I would give that cruise one star. Can you imagine the tension and the silence and oh. just the feeling on that boat having, what is that, 40% of you just got eaten by sharks? Yeah. Oof. Yikes. So the shark attack continues for quite a while, but eventually they back off. Later that night, under the moonlight and a beautiful starry sky, they finally fall asleep. Of course. But not for long. Brad and Deborah, they are awakened by Meg's moaning. The moaning gets progressively louder until she jumps up and attacks Brad as he lay there in the raft. The attack didn't last long. Meg went back to her end of the boat eventually, and Brad just chalked it up to the fact that she was probably angry that um, not only had her boyfriend, Skipper John, invited her on this lame cruise, but he had abandoned her when he decided to walk to the shore and instead got eaten by sharks. Not to mention, uh, he kind of left her twisting in the wind when she was all tangled up while the boat was sinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. And someone else had to come save her. And then he gets eaten by sharks? The audacity. Well, he did see his car on shore. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Give, give him a break. Man, he did see his mom's hospital. Delirium is weird. That sounds like a nightmare. Things did settle down again in the raft. I mean, Meg quietly spoke in tongues and made strange gestures with her hands while Deborah and Brad went back to sleep. In the morning, when the sun came up, though, Meg was dead. Ooh. Just lying there in the bottom of the raft. Oh, my God. Uh, trigger warning. Trigger warning. Things get real dark here for about 30 seconds. You've been warned. Oh, this, no. This is oh, the no. point in the story where... There are two survivors, Deborah and Brad. They They're... fall in love? No. <laughs> <laughs> They're starving. They've been oh, drifting no. further and further out into the Atlantic. No one knows where they are. Oh, no. That's when Brad said something like, Oh, no. Should we throw her overboard? Do we? 
Do we eat her and save ourselves? Deborah, again, though, back in a strong leadership role, says, Brad, shut the F up. She's too infected. He agrees. So. Yeah, that's the only problem with that scenario. I know. So, (laughs) you know, it's a good thing she said no, because can you imagine? That's when you hear about that. Remember that rugby team that crashed? Back in the 60s or 70s in the- Oh, in a mountain? In the mountains. And that's all anyone ever wants to talk about with that story is- People just get lost in the cannibalism. Yes. They can't get over it. But I mean, (laughs) hopefully none of us will ever be in that position where I'm looking, huh, Bryce looks delicious. Yeah. Where you're having that thing where all of a sudden they're looking at this corpse and it takes the shape of a turkey leg. (laughs) Oh, gross. Oh, boy. So they decide that that would be probably a terrible idea. What they do is they took her jewelry off. And this was kind of thoughtful. They, they took her jewelry so they could give it to her family. They said a prayer and then gently pushed her into the waters. Uh, the two survivors just laid back down, exhausted, and went back to sleep so they wouldn't have to watch Meg's body be attacked by sharks. That's rough. That's a bad day. This is the part of the story where I go, not in a million years. You remember earlier when we were talking about how the bottom of the raft was a swirling cesspool of human filth? Yeah. Blood. Vividly. Urine. Pus. You remember. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the pus. It was disgusting. Not only disgusting, it was toxic. It was making Deborah and Brad physically sick. Deborah had to make a hell of a sales pitch to Brad, but she eventually convinced him the only way we're going to survive this is by flipping the raft over, dumping all of the grossness out, but that meant they'd have to jump into the shark-infested waters in order to do it. Against his better judgment, Brad stood up, grabbed the rope, leaned back, attempting to flip the raft over with them in it in order to dump it and make it clean again. Well, the rope slipped out of his hands and he fell backwards right into the Atlantic. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is, man, this is so awkward. Do we know what happens next? Yes, we do. Listen to this. Too weak to climb back into the raft, a terrified and panicked Brad begs Deborah to help him climb back in. She tried, but was too weak herself and just fell back against the side and refused to help him. Not because she didn't want to. She was physically, she didn't have the strength. She just sat there crying while Brad begged and begged and begged for her help. She didn't. He eventually, though, did get himself back into the raft. And I can only imagine how uncomfortable that conversation was. Oh, my God. My first thought was that, is that somehow the worst case scenario? You would think him being eaten by sharks would be worst case, but him getting himself back in the boat and then just sitting and shooting lasers right through you. I would, the whole time I'd be like, hey, Deborah, remember that time I fell out of this raft into shark infested waters and you weren't even trying to help me back into the boat? Do you remember that? I'm going to tell everyone that story. This is the most awkward boat trip of all time. So Deborah says that once he got himself back into the raft, he refused to speak to her. Understandable. He sat at one end, she sat at the other, and she begged him for his forgiveness. Remember, this is a life raft that's probably not even the size of a small bathroom. Pretty tough to spread out and let it all blow over. And they're still sitting in what is essentially a bathroom as well. Yeah, exactly. Great. It's just you and the guy you didn't help back into the life raft hundreds of miles from nowhere. So those Russian vessels from earlier, they just, uh, they just didn't show up, hey? They're just toying with it. (laughs) Oh my God. 
So when you've been lost at sea and you're starving and dying of thirst and you've watched a few of your friends get devoured by sharks and the person you thought was your friend doesn't help you back into the life raft after you accidentally fall in, there's no wound or slight, real or imagined, that seeing a ship sailing towards you can't heal. And that's exactly what happened. Brad spotted at first. He tried telling Deborah, turn around, look, look, a ship. But she was still too ashamed of her behavior with the whole man overboard thing. She couldn't even look at him. And besides, she had heard the whole, look, everyone, a ship, a ship, a few too many times before on this journey. Right, just before the sharks had a meal. Yeah, and she just didn't think she could handle the disappointment again. But Brad's excitement seemed genuine this time. She turned around to look, and there it was, a big, beautiful Russian freighter. Oh, good. And it was headed their way. There, there it is. In her excitement, Deborah Ashley, she got up and dove into the water and started swimming towards the rescuers. Oh, no. A bold move, though, when you consider uh, what had just happened to a solid, what, 60% of, her, of your crewmates? <laughs> <laughs> Brad followed right behind her, too. Oh, good. So the two remaining survivors of the trash man sinking, they're hoisted onto the deck of that freighter. They're laid down on the deck and they're finally safe. Brad said that the feeling of being safe aboard a ship after such an ordeal is indescribable. Deborah said she didn't care where she was or where they were get going. She was just happy to be alive. She said, there's never a day you're more thankful for life than the day you almost die. Wow. Okay, so we had two people have whoopsie-daisies get eaten by sharks, Mm -hmm. one person die, and then brief thoughts of cannibalism, then tossed overboard. Abandonment. One guy fell over. Yeah, was abandoned by the other. The other one didn't rush to save him. Okay. You have to wonder if they, like, a couple years after this, could they... Could the two of them get together and have dinner and just <laughs> sort of laugh about it? I wonder, though, if they ever did talk. Yeah. At what point does the story become funny? Yeah. Um, in the end, they drifted 140 miles out to sea in a dinghy with no beacon. Because of that, passing freighters or any other traffic out in the Atlantic had no idea they were even there. And do you want to hear something really wild? Oh, more wild? Okay. The Coast Guard wasn't even looking for them. They'd called off the search because someone called the Coast Guard and said that the trash men had actually safely made it back to port. No one even knew that they were still lost at sea. Who would make that call? That's a twisted prank, if that's your... Like, what a specific thing. Like, to just call in, ah, oh, no, the trash man's fine. That's fine. I seen him down at the pub. <sighs> that was someone's mortal enemy who did that. Deborah Kiley. She went on to become a motivational speaker. She wrote a couple of books about the ordeal, one of which was made into a made-for-TV movie, which I believe made its world premiere one year during Shark Week on Discovery Channel. Tasteful. Uh, She died in 2012 of unknown causes at the age of 54, shortly after moving to Mexico. According to an Australian news site, in August of 2019, Brad Kavanaugh, the only other survivor of the trash man sinking, continued his career as a sailor, but it weighed heavily on him. He said, it's not something you just turn off once you've been through it. And that right there is the story of the sinking of the trash man and the crazy survival story of Deborah Kiley and Brad Kavanaugh. Well, I got to say, that's a pretty good story. Uh, I didn't have shark eating. I didn't think that'd be such a big part of it. Yeah. It 
It makes me never want to go on a cruise. It makes the ocean seem more horrifying than it already was. Yeah. Good Lord. Uh, my sources for this one, Brad. <laughs> Bryce. <laughs> Now I'm starting to look at you like Brad Kavanaugh. Oh my God, your head is shaped like a steak. <laughs> oh my God. How long have we been in this studio? I wonder, I'm kind of surprised that when they saw that boat coming, that they didn't just look at each other and like, listen, none of this happened. Yeah. The thoughts of cannibalism didn't happen. I was thinking about that same thing too, because wasn't it Brad who was like, hey, do we toss her in or do we hear? And it was Deborah that didn't help it. They both had something against the other person that they could have used as ammunition. Yeah. Huh. You're right. They should have had a conversation. Yeah. They should have kept some of this on the inside. My sources for this one, Bryce, Wikipedia. I read a ton of Wikipedia, mm-hmm. watched an episode of I Shouldn't Be Alive. And an article by Alison Maloney on Australian news site, news.com.au. Now we should look back on lessons learned from this story of the trash man. Lesson number one, get off the boat where one of the main guys is drunk and howling at the moon. If the guy's like, hey, I got an idea, and he just ties rope to the steering wheel of the boat, that's another, you should probably just head back to shore at that point. Consider that a red flag? Yeah. Uh, when your boyfriend doesn't come save you and someone else has to while the boat is sinking, <laughs> that's that's going to be a tense, tense raft. Can you imagine that. if they had both survived? Like, would they have had a future together? Would you be able to look past that if your best girl had not swam back to rescue you from a sinking boat? I'm not going to lie. I'd be a little bitter. Yeah, I think Just I would a be touch. too. 